Let's pray for God's blessing on our time now in this word, please. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for giving us the scriptures, and we're so thankful that you've given us your spirit to receive the things that have been freely given to us by our God, and we confess that we could not know these things, we could not understand them, we certainly could not rejoice in them, were it not for your Holy Spirit who changed our hearts and subdued us and made us teachable and who granted us spiritual life and spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. And so we pray that you would be with us now as we listen to the word of God, that we would lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10, verses 11 through 30. Is our scripture reading and sermon passage for this morning. John 10, verses 11 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 30. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who is he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life from the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? (coughs) Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. May God bless the reading of this word. The two biggest questions I had when I saw the biblical teaching on God's sovereignty and salvation and the divine design and the atoning work of Christ where he dies only in behalf of his elect people, the two questions were, why evangelize if God has already decided who's going to heaven? And two, how? How do we evangelize? If that's the case, how do we do it? Well, we evangelize for two reasons. First, because God tells us to do it. That should be enough. That should settle the question. But second, because God predestines not just the end, not just the final outcome. He also predestines the means by which his people will be brought to faith in Christ. We've been talking about the great synod of Dort that took place 400 years ago 
As you may recall, they had five major points of doctrine that they spelled out succinct paragraphs explaining what the scriptures teach about those five major points of doctrine. And then they reject the many errors that were being proposed by the Arminians. The first head of doctrine we looked at last time, the Synod of Dort, they called it unconditional election. And they wrote out 18 paragraphs, short, very short paragraphs, explaining the teaching from Scripture about what unconditional election is. And then they reject nine specific Arminian errors on that topic. And each one of those 18 articles or paragraphs has a little title affixed to it. Article number three of those 18 articles uh, in unconditional election is called the preaching of the gospel. It reads this way. And that men may be brought to believe God mercifully sends the messengers of these most joyful tidings to whom he will and at what time he pleases by whose ministry men are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. How then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? End quote. God mercifully sends messengers of the gospel to whomever he desires, whenever he desires. God uses us to bring the gospel to people. We simply deliver it to people and call them to repent and to believe it so that they can be saved. God is the one who gives the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, as far as the how do we evangelize, how, how, as far as how that goes, we must evangelize, this is not complicated, in the way that the apostles of Christ did in the book of Acts. I remember thinking long ago, hey, if I can't actually tell someone God loves you and Jesus died for you, then something's got to be wrong. If I can't do evangelism the way that I want to do it, then there's something wrong. But if you look over the 13 or so sermons and evangelistic presentations that are made in the book of Acts, you will find that the apostles of Christ and their companions never told a single person that God loved them, nor did they ever tell a single person that Jesus died for them. Instead, they said things like this in Acts 13, 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. In the Philippian jail, remember the Philippian jailer comes to to them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. In Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then one more, and Paul and Mars Hill there in Athens in Acts 17, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. We preach the law of God to make people conscious of their sin, and we pray that the Holy Spirit will show it to them, that the Spirit of God will open their eyes to see the great danger that they're in, and then we command them in Christ's name, repent and believe the gospel. We present Christ as the only remedy to their sins, the only one that can forgive them of their sins, the only one whose righteousness can make them right with God forever on the day of judgment. We preach Christ to people as the all-sufficient Savior, And that they need to repent of their sin, admit their sin, acknowledge their sin, and trust in Christ alone. 
And the results are left in God's hands. And we see that throughout the book of Acts, a great passage, Acts 13, 48. I've quoted it to you many times. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And whenever the question comes up, who did Jesus die for? The issue of how to do evangelism always accompanies it. For many, if they can't say the words, God loves you and Jesus died for you, then they think something's got to be wrong with your theology. When you read the word of God, however, you will find that exactly zero times that the apostles or evangelists in the New Testament ever say those words to anyone. I remember discovering that long ago and being rather shocked. And I would, would encourage you, when you find that traditions that you hold or ways that you were raised, that they don't jive with scripture, the problem is you, not scripture. They didn't tell anybody, God loves you, Jesus died for you. And that brings us to one of the key questions that the Synod of Dort dealt with. Who did Jesus die for? After unconditional election and divine predestination, the second head of doctrine that was treated at the great Synod of Dort to combat the Arminians was the issue of Christ's death and human redemption through it. That's what they called the second point of doctrine, Christ's death and human redemption through it. And before we walk through the, the sermon text for this morning, I want to read Articles 5 through 7 of that section, of the second head of doctrine there at the Synod of Dort, where they spell out the biblical teaching on the subject. Listen carefully to this. Article number five is called, The Mandate to Proclaim the Gospel to All. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons, promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. Article 6. Unbelief is man's responsibility. Listen to this. And whereas many who are called by the gospel do not repent nor believe in Christ, but perish in unbelief, this is not owing to any defect or insufficiency in the sacrifice offered by Christ on the cross, but is wholly to be attributed to themselves. And then the seventh article, faith is God's gift. Listen, but as many as truly believe and are delivered and saved from sin and destruction through the death of Christ are indebted for this benefit solely to the grace of God given them in Christ from everlasting and not to any merit of their own. You see what they're trying to protect? This is Christ's accomplishment. It's what God does. And he is the one who receives the glory for it. Now, look at John chapter 10 there, verse 11. Let's walk through this glorious passage of God's word. Verse 11, here Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Pharisees were the thieves mentioned in the previous part of the passage. Verses 8 through 10 mentions them. And in contrast to them, Jesus is the good shepherd. And one of the keys to understanding the force of this passage as we walk through it is the audience to whom he is saying these words. This audience that Jesus is talking to is refusing to believe in him. They are rejecting him as the savior of the world and they're rejecting him as being their savior. And what Jesus explains here in this whole discourse is, listen please, the deeply and intensely personal relationship that he has with his sheep who were given to him by his father before time. 
the plan of redemption within the members of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a definite, deeply personal plan involving a vast multitude of fallen sinners who were unconditionally elected by name, individually, from all eternity, to be given to Jesus Christ so he would have a worshiping church in this world and for all of eternity in heaven. And if you think that what the triune God did was he made a provision for the whole world and hopefully some people will take him up on his offer, then you don't understand how deep the love of God really is. And I want to tell you, having been studying this issue again and reading through those books on the Synod of Dora, I want to tell you something. The Arminians, the Arminian perspective has the lowest view of the love of God I've ever read. Ever. Because in their system, God does not love anyone enough. To save them. He doesn't love anyone enough to save them. Not one. The truth is. God loves his people so much. That he infallibly saves them. Certainly saves them. And they cannot possibly perish. As we're going to see in this passage. And it all goes to the praise of his grace. Always remember the biblical truth. That we covered a couple Sundays ago. Namely saying we're saved by grace. Necessitates unconditional election. Without the biblical doctrine of unconditional electing predestination of real individuals, there is no doctrine of grace in Scripture. Grace equals unconditional election. Last Sunday we looked at the the devastating impact of the fall upon the entire human race. Remember what man is like in his sin? 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man, the unconverted man, the man that still has a heart of stone, he does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, neither is he able to know them. He's not able to know them because they're spiritually discerned. The unregenerate person we know from Scripture is dead in their transgressions and sins. They're not sick or wounded. They're dead. Have you ever heard the illustration, well, we're all drowning and God's throwing us all a life preserver and all we got to do is, is grab hold of the life preserver and he'll draw us to the shore. You're not drowning. You, you died a long time ago. You're rotting at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus has got to swim to the bottom and pull your lifeless corpse off the bottom and resurrect you. That's the biblical description of grace. The unregenerate man is blind and deaf to the truth. He has eyes but sees not, ears but hears not. It is not possible that any such person would ever have any real desire to turn from sin to Christ, to be saved apart from the irresistible, divine, effectual call of God's grace, illustrated so well in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. What was Lazarus' condition? He was rotting. He stinks, it says. In the, he stinketh, it says in the King James. It's exactly the same with every true believer. In God's divinely appointed schedule, that effectual, irresistible call and new birth, it may come while a child is in the womb. It may come when they're two years old, when they're 18 years old, when they're 28 years old, when they're 98 years old. But God always gets his sheep without fail. Why? Look at verse 11 again. You see the last part of verse 11? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, who are the sheep? Those are the elect. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined by God to be adopted holy and blameless before him in love. This is the church of Jesus Christ. That's one thing the great Synod of Dort pointed out. The Arminian heresy denied that there is even a church at all. I remember years ago reading that, huh? They don't believe it. I thought, yeah, of course. 
There is no church. Without unconditional election, there's no church. What does that Greek word mean? What does ekklesia mean? The word means the called out ones. What is the church of Jesus Christ? It's the, it's the invisible church is all of God's chosen ones who are effectually called out, who are called out of darkness by his irresistible power. All the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory throughout all time. That's the church. God has chosen a definite number of individual people elected by name from all eternity to be his people forever. The visible church has always been those who profess faith in the one true gospel together with their children. That's the visible church. That's Old Testament teaching. That's New Testament teaching. The sheep of Jesus for whom he dies at the cross were given to him by the Father before time began. You know what's amazing is when you look at the scriptures and you look at the word of God, the biblical writers do not shrink from that truth, but rather they glory in it and rejoice in it constantly. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writing, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He knew us and gave us to Christ before time began. Titus 1.2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he determined their destiny before the world was created to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What does Paul say next? What a great topic for us to debate. What a great thing for us to argue about constantly and split and have a million denominations. He says, no, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has done this, he's foreknew us before the world and predestined us and chose us and gave us grace before time began. If he's for us, who can be against us? Why all that emphasis there? Before time began, predestined, before the foundation of the world. Why did the biblical writers hit this point so hard? Why did they hit that so hard? So we will always remember and know our willing and running had nothing to do with our salvation. That's why that's in there constantly. We believe the gospel because Jesus specifically died for us. We repented because the Holy Spirit would not be denied. He broke our wills. He broke our hearts. He opened our eyes to see our sin. God grants repentance. God grants faith. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. And it's grace alone that captures us, keeps us, and leads us all the way into heavenly glory. You know, if you've been in the church for a while, you've seen it, I'm sure. I have, over the course of my whole life, the trial comes and somebody disappears. They're gone, something terrible happens in their life and it's heartbreaking and their faith's gone. And yet, terrible things have happened to you, but your faith continues. What's the difference? Is it because you're better or more spiritual? It's because the Lord Jesus is holding fast and won't let go of you. That's the difference. Look at verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Okay, stop there. 
The Pharisees cared nothing about the people that they were supposed to be teaching and shepherding. Not only did they do nothing when the wolves approached, they were the wolves themselves. But what is Jesus? He's the owner of the sheep. They're his sheep. And once the Lord ascends back into heaven after he does his great work of dying and rising again, he actually entrusts his most valued possession, his blood-purchased sheep to under-shepherds, to pastors and elders in local churches. You know, we're often going to see wolves approach. We're also going to see wolves arise from within inside the church. And what's the response? What is the response of under-shepherds to that supposed to be? You protect the sheep from being led astray. Acts 20, 28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Like Jesus, pastors and elders are supposed to go into protection mode when wolves arise or approach. But I want to tell you, uh, as a student of church history, it doesn't always work. I just want to point out to you all that two of the most godly and gifted pastors that Jesus Christ ever gave his church were fired from their churches. Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin were both fired. You know why they got fired? Because they tried to protect their churches from wolves. It's what a good shepherd does. It's what they're supposed to do, even if a lot of the sheep don't appreciate it. Jonathan Edwards was faced with a serious theological error that had been taught by his maternal grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard, if you know the story, he, he thought he had been converted while taking the Lord's Supper, and therefore he thought the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance of some kind that we should encourage unbelievers to take so maybe they can be converted too. And Jonathan Edwards was a young man when he took over that church, and he didn't want to stand out against them at first, but eventually he recognized that's a serious error. That's wrong. And he even wrote a book refuting that error. But nobody bothered to read it. And the influential, powerful people in his church who wanted him gone, they sort of um, used everything at their disposal to make sure that that happened. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty. Edwards was right. And all of his opponents were wrong. John Calvin was faced with known, notoriously wicked people coming into his church and trying to take communion one Sunday. And he said, y'all can take communion over my dead body. And he got fired, and he got run out of town for it. Shepherds are supposed to protect the sheep from wolves, just like Jesus did, because those sheep are his blood-purchased property. There's nothing more important to God in the whole universe than his sheep. Jesus' love for his sheep is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. That's that kind of love. Therefore, how should the shepherds love those same sheep? How zealous ought they to be in protecting them from Error from wolves, from false teachings. Love cannot be demonstrated by anything greater than the giving away of one's life. And Jesus would eventually tell his own disciples, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that had particular poignancy to them because he did it the very next day. And he laid down his life for them and for all his sheep. Now this next section, as I said, emphasizes the personal, deep relational aspect of election and Jesus's relationship to his sheep. Look at verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Isn't that encouraging to you? Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. 
just as God the Father knows Jesus and Jesus knows God the Father. That is as intimate and personal as fellowship can possibly be. Remember that the blessed divine acts of justification and adoption, they have as their goal the restoration of communion with God. That's the goal of God's redeeming his people. That's the goal of the work of Christ is to restore us to fellowship and friendship with God so we can have that joy with God. Remember, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him? That's what Adam lost. That's what he lost for the human race when he rebelled and sinned. That loss of fellowship with God, that's at the heart of all of mankind's problems. Idolatry. If you're a Christian, you still struggle with idolatry. And every issue you have in your life, all the sin and issues you've got in marriage or whatever else, they all go back to that issue of idolatry. It's always an idolatry. You, you peel away the layers of the onion and whatever our problems are, there's always something else pulling us away from God. You know, the Marxists tell us that the root of all mankind's problems are economic and they arise because of class struggle in society. Well, what's the problem with Marxism? It locates the problem out there instead of in here. Our problems in here is much deeper than economics. Man's very nature is wicked, rebellious, foolish, and sinful. And God must change mankind's heart if the world's problems will ever be addressed. Our problem is not merely economic. The, the real issue, why you and I struggle so much in life, is that we've lost communion with God. We've lost fellowship with our creator. And apart from supernatural divine intervention, man will never have that fellowship restored. That's why we're so lost. Man doesn't know God in a personal, loving, intimate way anymore. And this is why we have a whole culture of blame shifters today and perpetual victims who really do think they never do anything wrong and that every sin they've ever committed somehow is someone else's fault. And this is why we have the soulless killers that shoot up high schools and elementary schools and blow up buildings. This is why marriage is so hard. This is why raising children is so heartbreaking at times. This is why we lay in bed at night distraught and worried about things so much we can't sleep. This is why everything that man does has such an incredible sense of futility about it. Man doesn't know his creator anymore. Remember Solomon musing on everything he did? Musing on it without God? What, what was all of it? Chasing after the wind? Vanity of vanities? All is vanity? What's the point of anything? For those reconciled to God through the work of Christ, for those justified and adopted, we do know God again. We do know the Lord Jesus. And we have that new life in us. And that slavery to sin has been shattered. And the Lord's Spirit assures us of God's love and gives us peace in our conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit. An increase of grace day by day and perseverance to the end so we can go to heaven. Jesus knows his sheep and in this life at some point they will be drawn to him and they will be restored to personal deep communion with God. Jesus lays his life down for them because his love for them is infinite and beyond description. Even in eternity itself, dear congregation, those that will be in heaven will never fully completely comprehend the width and length and depth and height of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, and even here we see it. We see that love where? At the cross. He laid his life down for us. He bore the wrath in our place. Jesus took hell upon himself so that we would not only never experience it, but so that we could be reconciled to him and have fellowship with God again. Look at verse 16. 
I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. This is referring to the entire Gentile world where a multitude of sheep were yet to be discovered through its evangelization. The devotees of false religions and pagan religions, they would be saved too and when they hear the gospel. And there will never ever be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There will always be one church and one shepherd. That's why the whole phenomenon, it's a sad thing, the idea of a messianic Jewish church. There's just the church. There is no Israel in the church. It's just the church. Jews and Gentiles together in Christ in one church with one shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And all these Gentiles, they will be brought to. And Jesus says, I must bring them also and they will hear my voice. Look at verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. There's perfect unity among the members of the Holy Trinity with regard to redemption. And what I mean by that is their intentions are identical. It's not the case that Jesus goes out and dies for every human being in the entire human race with no exception, but then God the Father's design is only to save some of the human race. If each of the persons of the Trinity is fully God, which they are, and then if their intentions and designs and desires conflict in any way, you would have a divine stalemate. Who wins? Notice the last phrase of verse 18. You see it? The last phrase of verse 18. This commandment I received from my Father. The laying down of his life for his sheep is exactly what God the Father commanded Jesus to do. And it was Jesus' greatest joy to complete that work that the Father commanded him to do. And now the response of Jesus' enemies to this glorious, profound, and wonderful teaching. Here we go, verse 19 to 21. You see it? A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? They stopped there. The works, the mighty miracles that Jesus did, they bore witness to his true identity as the Messiah of Israel. And remember that John 10 follows right after John 9. And from John 7 through John 10, Jesus is there at the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. And there would have been a multitude of people there, lots of people there. People who are deeply religious in their commitment to the Old Testament. And most of them, sadly, had been badly misled by their leaders, and they had no understanding of grace or their need for a Savior really at all. They certainly were badly mistaken in their expectation that the Messiah would be a political deliverer and would free Israel from Roman occupation and all of that. Nevertheless, they couldn't deny what they saw. What happened in John 9? Jesus healed a man, a full-grown man, who had been born blind. And all they could do in response was name call. He has a demon. He's insane. Others knew that a demon-possessed man wouldn't talk like this. And a demon can't open the eyes of a person who's been born blind. The power of God is manifestly clearly upon this individual. And so they were divided. They were divided over him. Always notice that. See verse 19? A division occurred. Everywhere Jesus went, he divided people. Everywhere he went, he divided people. Nicodemus, when he 
met with Jesus there at night. He said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God because no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In the book of Acts, uh, the enemies of the apostles noticed this too. For all their hatred of Jesus and their hatred of his messengers and their hatred of the message itself, that they were sinners, that they needed to be saved, they couldn't deny that these incredible miracles were happening all around them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus' enemies and the apostles' enemies says, say, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's the same story here in John 10, 21. They knew Jesus did something never heard of in the history of time. A full-grown blind man who was blind from birth can see perfectly now. Jesus divided people sharply everywhere he went. Always remember, folks, please remember this. Please remember this. Fake Jesuses unite people around social causes. Fake Jesuses, not the biblical Jesus, fake and phony Jesuses unite people around social causes while the true Jesus divides people around theological issues. The true Jesus forces you to face who he really is. False Jesuses never do that. False Jesuses tell the lie. Just put your theological differences aside. You're a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. Let's hold hands and sing songs by the campfire and work on social causes together. That's the fake Jesus. That's the phony Jesus. The true Jesus says to the world, this offensive exclusive message that often permanently divides families, permanently divides nations, permanently divides friends. Jesus comes along and says, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Jesus comes along and says, John 8, 24, I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus created division everywhere he went, just like his apostles did, just like we will if we are faithful to our Lord. And I want to tell you, there's never been a group of human beings on this planet that has been more concerned and done more to alleviate the the pain and suffering of the world than the Christian church. No group of human beings in the history of the world has done more to help alleviate suffering than Christians. But Jesus promised, you stand for me, you're going to have enemies. He said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Just remember that. Jesus divided people. He divided people because he forced them to deal with who he was. And the Christian church today is not doing anyone any favors if it refuses to preach that same message. Look at verse 22 to 25. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. I'll stop there. The ability to do miracles has always been given to the spokespersons for the one true God. And it's happened in three major epochs of world history. Moses and Aaron could do miracles to validate that they were the spokespersons for God. Elijah and Elisha did, representing the prophets. And then finally, Jesus and the apostles. 
How do people know who really spoke for God? The people that could do miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I love Paul's simple defense of his apostleship. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. How do you guys know I'm an apostle? I can do miracles, and they can't. These people who saw the, a wonder of wonders, a man born blind, a full-grown man who was born blind as an infant newborn, and they're still telling Jesus, tell us who you really are. Why are you keeping us in suspense? And Jesus tells them the obvious, everything I'm doing has already answered your question. These miracles that I do, they bear witness of me. And yet, look at verse 26. Here's the key. But you, Jesus talking to them, but you do not believe because... You are not of my sheep. Now notice he doesn't say, you don't believe because you're not willing. He says, you guys don't believe because you're not among my sheep. I remember hearing a world-class scholar, Bible theologian, exegete this passage by saying, quote, you don't say ba-ba to become a sheep, you say ba-ba because you are a sheep. The point being, Jesus explains this group of people's rejection of him as being ultimately caused by the fact that they're not a part of this group already. You guys don't believe because you are not of my sheep. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now this is knowing in the intimate sense of close fellowship, personal affection. All true Christians recognize none of us loves Jesus perfectly. If you ever get to a point in your Christian life where you are finally satisfied with how much you love Jesus, then we need to talk. But we do love him some, and we long to be more like him. We long to follow him and be closer to him and to know him better. The sheep of Christ hear his voice. And where do they hear his voice? In scripture alone. Where has God spoken? Where do we have a sure word from him? The scriptures, for they alone are God-breathed. And these last three verses in the passage here, they contain some of the most wonderful promises that God has ever made to his people. Look at verse 28. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so back up. Look at 26, 27, 28 together. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Can we lose our salvation? Can a true Christian lose their salvation? Thank you. You said that. (laughs) Only if eternal life is, well, temporary. Yeah, I had eternal life for two weeks. Also, we can only lose our salvation if it's possible for Jesus to try real hard to save his sheep, but fail to do so. I remember listening to a debate many years ago between a Protestant and a Roman Catholic on the issue. Can a true Christian lose their salvation? And right out of the gate, the the, the Protestant guy won the debate in the first sentence. And he gave a quotation. I can't recall who the quotation was from, but it, the quotation was something like this. Jesus Christ 
is accountable to his father for the salvation of every single individual that was entrusted to him before the foundation of the world. And therefore, we need not doubt that he will employ all the powers of his Godhead to do that which he was sent into the world to do infallibly. I was like, stop the tape. Tape's over. The debate's done. That's right. Jesus is accountable to his father to bring every single one that was given to him into heaven. That's how you look at salvation in a biblical and God-centered way. And I'll look at verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So I ask, are their hands more powerful than Jesus's, more powerful than God the father's? Every blood-purchased sheep of Jesus Christ is held in these omnipotent, strong hands. And no one is able to snatch a believer out of them. They are safe and secure, always and forever. So I ask the question again, who did Jesus die for? What do we see in the passage? John 10, verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. And why did Jesus' opponents not believe in him? Because you are not of my sheep. Did Jesus die for everyone? No. He dies only for his sheep, for his church, for his elect. Now, if there are a hundred condemned murderers on death row, and they're all scheduled to be executed, and the governor of the state calls in a stay of execution for 60 of these condemned murderers, but lets the other 40 be executed, has anything unfair happened? The 40 who died got justice. They were condemned murderers. The 60 condemned criminals that were spared by the governor got mercy. People do go to hell. People do go to hell. And when they go to hell, what are they getting? Justice. Fairness. What do the elect of God get when they're saved by Christ? Grace and mercy. And so I ask, whoever gets injustice? Nobody. Is God ever unfair to anyone? It's contrary to his character. God is not capable of being unfair. It is impossible that God could be unfair to anyone. God has never been unfair to anyone ever. Now, I want to read to you a passage. Just listen to it. Soak this in. I've read it to you before. I've preached on it before. Romans 9, 15 to 24. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? With a thing formed, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
so that he could make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Remember reading that 20 something years ago and slamming my Bible shut and pushing it across the table. God tolerates the vessels of wrath so he can make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. Wow. So he really is God then, isn't he? He really is the sovereign king of the universe. The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Those are the God-hating, rebellious, unrepentant sinners who delight in their sin, have no interest in Christ, and they die that way. And what do they get when they die? They get justice. They get what's fair. The vessels of mercy prepared by God for glory get compassion. They get mercy, not justice. Who gets justice for them? Jesus at the cross. And who gets injustice? Nobody. To whom, God is, to whom is God unfair? No one. So Jesus did not come into the world to make salvation possible for everyone? Correct. Why did he come then? Why did he come then? Glad you asked, because he tells us exactly why. John 6.37. Listen to scripture. John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise them up at the last day. Is it possible for Jesus to fail? To fail to do his father's will? If it were, the whole universe would cease to exist. Jesus accomplished his mission. And if you're a repentant Christian person, it's because of his work in you, not anything you did independently of him. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the perfection of the work of Christ, the perfection of the covenant of redemption, where you chose a vast multitude of people and gave them to Jesus, as he just said there, that my father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand, and I and my father are one, and his promise, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Lord, those are the very anchors upon which we stand We bless and praise your name for that compassion, for that grace, for that indescribable gift of love for us who are so undeserving. May our hearts rejoice. Whatever else we've got going on, whatever troubles or difficulties or heartaches, may our hearts rest in the blessed joy of having our fellowship and communion with you restored through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.